and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Christmas Special. To close Season 6, I'm delighted to be able to present a live recording of an evening with Robin Ince, comedian, author and co-host of The Infinite Monkey Cage, which I hosted recently as part of his 100 Bookshops tour for his new book, The Importance of Being Interested. We discuss science, the crossover with folklore, and lots more in this interview. You can find much more about Robin, his work, and his own podcasts by visiting the Cosmic Shambles Network website. Closing the episode after Robin are the wonderful and talented Lunar Tractors, performing their version of The Holly and the Ivy, using reconstructed content which predates the Christian versions of the song. This will be a feature-length episode which I hope will be a real treat to end the year. So, no more from me. I'll see you again for Season 7 in 2022. Enjoy the episode. Um, Some of you will know me from uh, from working part of the week down in Crediton Library. Um, I am also, uh, as is Robin, our guest this evening, an author and a podcaster, my own podcast, the Folklore Podcast, um, appeared bizarrely on Robin's list in the big issue recently um, of the top ten podcasts that he listens to when he's got nothing better to do. Uh, <laughs> well, Folklore Podcast can only appear bizarrely. Had it appeared in a mundane way, no one would have been interested. The fact that it seemed to appear from nowhere, with no true backstory, and the sense of possibly a giant cat having brought it. Yeah. You know, all of those things are very important in folklore podcasts. This is, how it, this is how it got its success, to be fair, giant cats. Uh, Robin, you will know as a comedian, as an author, as a broadcaster, as the co-creator, co-host of The Infinite Monkey Cage, um, a very, very successful podcast slash radio show on the BBC, which deals with science, as does... Robin's new book, The Importance of Being Interested. Robin, you um, you had a bit of an uncomfortable upbringing with science, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think I had... I don't know how true it is of everyone here, basically, in terms of... Uh, do we have any scientists in, by the way? Can I just check? So we've got some, some scientists, right? So this is interesting because I... I loved science up to the age of 12 or 13. That was the, the thing. Is I, I, uh, I, I think when you're at primary school, science is this tangible thing. Science is its leaves and it's, you know, the cast of worms and it's looking at butterflies and, you know, sometimes having, you know, seeing them, you know, pupate, all that kind of stuff. And it's sometimes staying at school, uh, you know, in the middle of winter where you're allowed to, you know, go out and do a bit of stargazing. And then for me, somewhere around the age of 13, science, became numbers and symbols and detached from uh, actually the world around me and I think a lot of people have had that experience where it was it was a sudden change and you know even someone like Carlo Rovelli who uh, is a great science writer and a great scientist he goes oh my god I don't know how I got through science when I was a teenager it was all levers and pulleys that's all it was levers and pulleys and um and I think there is something where, like, I mean, I remember the ones, I remember the most exciting physics lesson that we had uh, when I was 13 was holding a burning peanut under a test tube containing some water to find out the energy that lay within a peanut. And 
it didn't have the glamour of cosmology that I was hoping for, you know. Mm. And it's, as a man who grew up to later on love bar snacks, you know, this was not anything. It did nothing for me. And and then I had then we dissected a frog once, and it was a very hot summer's day. And I hadn't realised that at the end of that, someone had put the remains of the frog in my jacket pocket. So that put me off Charles Darwin for a while as well. There was always um, something, wasn't there, about, about science and dissection and, and animals. My, my similar memory of, of a science lesson was not the dissection. It was the, the school bully, for want of a better term, picking bits off the lung and throwing it at the vegetarians in the class. Yeah, yeah, that would be... Uh, that, yeah, that, 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 that visceral kind of experience. And that is, but that is... Um, so I, I just became detached from it, really. And I'd loved some. I mean, Cosmos, Carl Sagan's Cosmos was on when I was 11 years old. And that was, you know, such a great bit. You know, the TV show, the, the Cosmos is everything there is, everything there was, and everything there ever will be. We are all made of star stuff. You know, all of that stuff was just so engaging. So I became disengaged. And then, about the age of 23, there was a headline. It's a front page news headline, actually. And it was uh, one that I couldn't believe. It was this headline in the independent newspaper that said, uh, Echoes from the Big Bang can still be heard reverberating around the universe. And it was... This idea seemed too ridiculous to me. This idea that, you know, first of all, the Big Bang was ages ago. 30.8 billion years ago. It's a long time ago. It can't still be echoes, you know, reverberating around the universe. And, and, and secondly, also, it was like, just the universe is enormous. And it felt like, hang on a minute, I need to understand this, because the idea that we are still able to detect things that happened at that point you know the beautiful explanation of someone who once said that the big bang was basically it was you know uh before the big bang there was nothing but nothing with a lot of potential which i've always found a kind of intrigue it's a bit like black holes when you first read about black holes and then eventually you find out the black holes are basically nothing but they're nothing with an incredible power you know they're they're they're, they're, the fact that a black hole they i I think i mean in fact these are really good times obviously for you know for black holes in terms of I think once we actually got an, an image of a black hole, the amount that that can feed into the imagination, but then there's that other beautiful side of it, which is the fact that scientists will sometimes say, we haven't detected this yet, but the equations work, so it will exist. That, to me, is something very beautiful as well. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was about the size of the universe, and it was just so... And that's the first time that I had ever begun to even, anyway, think about how enormous the universe was. To, to, to then start to read about things that our galaxy is 100,000 light years across, to then start to read about the fact there are somewhere between 200 billion stars and 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone, because you are allowed to be out by 200 billion in cosmology. And that, all of those things were so beautiful and shocking. And that's what started to draw me in. And then I started to think about the other side of it, which is... There is a level of existential shock, I think, when you... Or or another way of putting it is, uh, you probably heard this phrase, cosmological vertigo, which uh, I I first read in in Ronald Wright's book, uh, Short History of Progress, where it was this idea that in the end of the 19th century, all of these ideas that that were coming to the fore, uh, including ideas about, you know, the very early days of what would eventually develop into quantum mechanics, as well as this, the fact that we are connected to all other forms of life, the way that natural selection works, all of these things were so shocking to people that some just almost gave up 
on everything. You know, Paul Gauguin, the uh, the artist, that is one of the reasons that he you know fled uh, to go off and do what he did in in his cruel and unpleasant way. Um, but it is yeah. So, so all of those things started, to, and I started to think about why it is that we become disengaged from science. And I think as well as the bit of the fact that when I was being taught, it seemed to be so detached from my world. I think the other side is that it is so shocking that, you know, when I do shows with Brian Cox, sometimes when people are leaving at the end of the show, we will get tweets where we, well, one tweet we get a lot is, I didn't understand a word of that, but my nine-year-old daughter is currently explaining it to me, right? That happens quite a lot. And then the other uh, thing that we get is, oh my God, I feel so insignificant. And you can see how when you first, because I think there's a couple of things on that. One is, I shouldn't have had that coffee, by the way. You, your part might be over and done with. The, um, <laughs> but it is, but I, the, the, that insignificance is something that we have to deal with. That sense of it, because I think people feel that significance is sometimes about size. So they will get, not be able to really be able to place in their head the enormity of the universe. So it gives them this shocking feeling. And then the first thing I will say to people when they say I feel so insignificant is it's not about the size that you are. You know, you're smaller than Jupiter. Everyone here together is much smaller than the galaxy. We are all far, far, far smaller than you. If you look at the fact that, you know, even within our solar system, it doesn't, you don't have to move very far away from the Earth for the Earth to be, as Carl Sagan wrote about it, you know, the pale blue dot, the image taken by Voyager. We are, you don't have to go very far away and we're tiny. But unlike Jupiter, unlike the galaxy, at least as a whole, we are a very peculiar, complex arrangement of atoms. That is far, everyone here, is far, it is easier to explain Jupiter than it is to explain you. Because you are able to think and feel and hope and love and imagine the future and think about the past and all of those things, all of these things that Jupiter can't do. So you might be small, but you're very complex and you're far, as far as we can see so far, far rarer than planets. You are a very unusual thing. So that was the first thing that I wanted to kind of deal with, which was to try and be... It's what I describe myself quite often with the shows that I've done with Brian and other people is I'm kind of an idiot bridge, you know? I'm not a a smart person or tremendously well-versed in a lot of ideas, but I have enough interest that when people get a bit shocked, because, you know, as, as you know from the shows with Brian, basically, especially the live shows, I have always described myself as a professional idiot. My job is to come on the stage when the audience have stopped understanding what Brian's saying, right? So there is a period of time where, if you've ever been... Has anyone seen any of the live shows that we do? Right? You, you know what basically happened. The first ten minutes, he comes on after some lovely graphics, and he goes, the universe is wonderful and enormous, and it's filled with things that shine. And you go, oh, it is, I get all this, right? And then at about 15 minutes, you'll probably notice, that's the first where we go, let's discuss light cones. And you see an image which is alien to you, you haven't seen this before, and then an equation pops up in the corner and you go it's getting a bit harder now isn't it i don't don't necessarily get this bit quite so much but i think i'm all right are you yes i'm understanding it right people get a little bit touched there and about 25 minutes in is when people go oh jesus i can't understand anything that's going on oh why won't an old man in the cardigan come on and do a brian blessed impersonation and at that point i'll come and go for heaven's sake brian you bloody idiot right and go off on some rant there and the audience then go 
Oh, thank heavens for that. We don't have to listen to this. Uh, we can just enjoy the rhythm of the noises as the old man fools around. And then after about ten minutes, they say, Oh, we understand that. We've assimilated what the pretty man said. Can we go back to him? And I go, Yes, you can go back to him now. Back to you, Brian. And he goes, And Hawking Radiation. And that's how it works, right? That's the basic system. So that's part of what I wanted to do in the book, which is to say that you don't have to have... You know, I think some of the... In fact, your science book section is a really good science book session because some science books are sold as popular science and you think you're meant to understand them. I don't know if anyone here has read Roger Penrose's books, right? Roger Penrose is not science for everyone. I mean, he's brilliant, but you're going to take a bloody... And I know I didn't allow you to answer that, but that's in case you disagree with me and we haven't got time. So, um, <laughs> it is... But I, do, I mean, I think it's, you know, Emperor, Emperor's uh, New Mind uh, is, is a really important book, but it's a book that if you have been sold it believing you will be able to kind of romp through it, it's, I, don't, I don't think it is... A, you have to stop almost every paragraph and go, what does that mean? What is he talking about? On what scale is he talking about? What is this built on this idea? Um, and so I think people... And the moment someone's had that sense of, of kind of alienation, from, but they just think that they can't do science. They will immediately go, I don't have a science mind. So that's kind of... I, I wanted to, So some of the things, like the size thing, was I think very often people think when they watch a cosmologist or an astronomer <laughs> talking in terms which involve billions of light years they imagine that inside that scientist's head they are seeing something with a precision that is not available to them so when when you know chris lintot is talking in those terms they're thinking oh chris sees something that i cannot see and then i spoke to quite a few astronomers and cosmologists and the illustration i'll use for this when they're talking about the enormity of the universe, is how many people here have seen the film A Matter of Life and Death? Have you ever seen that? The, the film David Niven and... Yeah, you know the movie. It's a beautiful movie. It's a fantastic film. It is... Uh, everything that I'm talking about today is subjective, apart from one thing, and that is that A Matter of Life and Death is one of the greatest films ever made. That is an objective <laughs> thing. If anyone says I don't like it much, they're wrong. Um, it has the opening shot is a camera, it was made in 1946, a camera panning across the universe, and you see all of these glittering stars, and it is beautiful, it's one of those things that in 1946, it looks remarkable, it's made by Powell and Pressburger, two true visionaries of the cinema, and it pans across all of these glittering stars, and then the most English of English voices suddenly says, this is the universe! Big, isn't it? And that's it. Big, isn't it? When Chris is talking about the size of the universe, when Lucy Green is talking about the size of the universe, ultimately what they're seeing in the mind is big. And they may well be able to have, you know, a more nuanced uh, view of the universe and they may well be able to have it, know it in, in, a, in a way that we are not necessarily as accessible to us. But ultimately, when it gets to the bigness of big, even the wisest people still just see is it that scale, do you think, that, that means that we as a species have the affinity that we do with our own home planet? Because you talk about the pale blue dot, um, the Earthrise photograph taken from the moon, obviously, but also... And I was watching recently the documentary coverage of the um, last SpaceX Inspiration4 mm. mission. Four civilians in space looking down from the cupola on you know, the, the curvature of our own planet. And unless you witness that, say the people that have done so you don't truly understand that affinity that you have mm. with, with our home yeah is it just a matter of scale or is there something else no I think that bit I mean 
Apollo 8 is such an interesting mission in terms of the fact that that, that famous image of Earthrise was, was that wasn't on the itinerary. You know, mm. the, the reason that we have that image, which was such an inspiration to the environmental movement, is because two of the astronauts in Apollo 8 thought the moon was really boring. They felt really let down by it, right? They were the Apollo 8, if you don't know, didn't land on the moon, but it surveyed the moon. And they were going round the moon, and they were looking at it going, oh, so this is the moon. It's a bit rocky and cratery, and that's about it. No, and then, no cheese or Yeah, there was, no, there was, you know, where are the selenites that H.G. Wells told us would run the... And, and then they looked out the window and went, bloody hell, we live there. And that's, you know, it was by, almost by chance that they looked out the window, Jim Lovell, at exactly the right time to see this most remarkable picture. You know, that famous idea that basically you need to leave home to discover what home is. And that's what that was about. Um... And also Apollo 8 is, is, as far as... I don't know about the other Apollo missions, but it's the only one that I know has quite a gratuitous story of a terrible attack of diarrhoea. I don't know if you know about this. Is You never hear about this in Apollo things generally, but basically on the first day of the mission, one of the astronauts got very poorly stomached and then the other two had to float around going, there's a bit over there. And that's <laughs> never... You, know, you never see that in Star Trek. There's never a kind of... that. that moment. Thank you very much, Dr McCoy. Your Imodium is excellent. But, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's an interesting thing actually because when you mention about the kind of the private space missions that are going on i have a and i don't like to be cynical i have a cynicism about those Mm. because i feel that they have a kind of well exactly what as you know in the book i talk about rusty schweikart who was apollo 9 and uh, Apollo 9 is a, is, a, is a mission that I think it's... Well, like a lot of Apollo missions, just people don't know enough about it. We know so much about Apollo 11. But Apollo 9 was testing out the lunar module and it was also the first Apollo spacewalk. And Rusty is an amazing... He's the youngest Apollo astronaut. He's 86 years old now. And uh, he is, like all the astronauts that I've met, there is, it doesn't really have that much interest talking about the past. They always want to talk about the next thing. Um, and in fact, the last book recommendation he gave me was LSD and the Mind of the Universe. That's the kind of guy he is, right? And uh, and I really lo- and I love talking to him because he loves weird and he. De- but he he is an interesting. He was one of the few Apollo astronauts who ended up with some free time because J.G. Ballard. I mentioned in the book that J.G. Ballard talked about the fact that he felt that astronauts were very dull people, that they did not have any kind of dreamscape. And that's not fair, and it's not true. I think the truth of it is those Apollo astronauts were under such, you know, the, the, the tightness of the demands of those means that there wasn't time to wander off into a philosophical place. And, and, and also some of them being the military men that they were, it was very easy to kind of, you know, be mocked for thinking philosophically. Uh, Jim Lovell, uh, is always, he always thought of himself as an explorer. So he had a different concept right from the start. So Jim was uh, Apollo 8 and Apollo 13. And Rusty, I think, did as well. Rusty, um, he prepared himself going into space by... Every Sunday night, his wife was off doing choir practice. And he would sit listening to great pieces of music, classical and jazz. And he would read books of poetry, books of philosophy and great novels. And then he chose certain lines from these great books... And he had them written on kind of Bible paper, you know, very, very thin paper. And, uh, and he rolled them up into little scrolls that he took with him into space because he wanted to take with him some of humanity, some of the work. Because he knew from an early stage 
he knew the Apollo mission wasn't about him and it wasn't even about NASA. It wasn't about any of that. It really was about these first... I mean, the, if, has anyone here read the, the story The Sentinel by Arthur C. Clarke, which is 2001 A Space Odyssey, was a, it's what inspired that, which is... A, uh, that has a... Uh, I mean, it's much easier to understand than 2001 A Space Odyssey and much shorter. Um, and it's, a, and it's a really about the, the black monoliths that are, in, uh, that are in 2001. In The Sentinel story, it's basically an, an alien species has gone to various planets and on their nearest satellite has placed a black monolith uh, and or black obelisk. And the idea is, should the species that live on that planet have the curiosity to leave their own planet and visit the nearest object, so their moons, and when they see that obelisk, should they touch that obelisk, it will send a signal to those alien creatures that will say, that is an interesting species. That is a species that wants to journey. That is a species that wants to question the universe. And that's kind of what Rusty had, right? So Rusty ended up in this situation where uh, he goes out for the first spacewalk and then there's a camera jam. And so they go, hang on a minute, Rusty, the camera's jammed. You just wait there. So he ended up with this wait there time of just floating in space for a few minutes, but a few minutes where he didn't have to think about the mission. All he could think about if he wanted to was his own planet and looking back at that and then the thing that I find fascinating with this story is that it didn't immediately the, 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 the importance of that moment it took him five years for him to really realise what had gone on because uh, he um, in 1973 oh god is it two or three? Oh god damn but Apollo 17 so the final uh, Apollo mission um, there was a guy there called William Irwin Thompson who was a philosopher who thought that all of the, this Apollo stuff was bullshit. He thought this was all macho John Wayne stuff. And he basically told Rusty that. And then they went to go and watch the launch of Apollo 17. And Apollo 17, you can watch it on YouTube and you'll still get a sense of it. I mean, it's so magnificent to watch because it was the only nighttime launch of an Apollo mission because it was delayed. So it means that when you see that footage the brightness of what you see under the rocket. And you get some sense. Of course, you don't get the true magnitude, but you get some sense of the noise, of what that must have done to people, the way that it vibrated at the same speed as their internal organs, all of these things, right? And, and so William Owen Thompson saw that next to Rusty Schweikart, and he was like, oh, this is, this is more than John Wayne stuff. And he asked Rusty, he said, will you come and speak at this conference that I do uh, called Lindisfarne on Long Island? And he said, sure, because he suddenly realised there was something big going on here. And, uh, and Rusty arrived in time. He arrived to see Carl Sagan storming off because Carl Sagan was furious. Carl Sagan had come to do a lecture and people kept asking him about Eric von Daniken, the man who wrote those books about how aliens came down and built all the pyramids and stuff like that. And uh, books which are still in publication now. Any of the scientists in here, can I just give you some advice? Don't write a book about science. It'll be out of date in five years. Write a book that is utter bullshit, because bullshit is always... So Eric von Daniken wrote stuff that was bullshit in the late 1960s, still published, because it says bullshit now as it always was. Um, and uh, anyway, so uh, the Rusty thought, I must write a speech. I've got to write this speech. And he never got round to it. 
he kept going off to write the speech and then he goes to a hill or go write a speech on a hill and then someone's playing the tabla and he's like going oh god this is so beautiful it's taking me somewhere else oh my god I've got to go and do my speech and he went off to do the speech with three words written on a piece of paper no idea what he was going to do and he stood up in front of everyone and suddenly his experience from five years before just came together and he realised the philosophical magnitude of what it is to be a creature with curiosity that at some point needs to leave its mother and he sees mother earth really as a very kind of you know a, a tangible idea of of a mother so, which is a long way round of saying rusty schweikart is a great and deep thinker about what it is to going into space and i'm not sure jeff bezos is <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that that whole um build up to that speech that's pretty much how we planned what we were going to do this yeah yeah, yeah. sorry i'm just really into, i've done 38 of these in 14 days and i've got another like 76 to do and i just let my mind go off like i told you before this started right there was a i had a conversation with a bloke recently who said i really need to talk to you i've been watching your work for a very long time and uh, and i think you may well be adhd and uh, and uh, I went through all these things and he went, yeah, that pretty much is ADHD. And then I thought I'd better tell my wife, you know, see what she thinks. I don't know. I haven't been diagnosed. And I said, I think uh, this guy reckons I'm ADHD. And she went, well, that would be good. I've always thought you were bipolar. So uh, there's a silver lining, isn't there? That's a nice thing, isn't there? Yeah. I want to think a little bit about, um, you, you mentioned philosophy a couple of times in, in, in that section. Um, Science You're right, it was long enough to be a section as well, wasn't it? That was more, <laughs> was, that was was more than an answer, yeah. I was searching for the In right that particular chapter, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> philosophy and science seems, uh, at first sight, perhaps like a bit of an odd crossover occasionally. And this is something that comes up a lot for me, working with folklore, OK? And, I, and I've drawn this distinction a couple of times in my own books about the difference between investigating in terms of folklore and investigating in terms of paranormal investigation mm. okay so if you think think about ghosts uh, you and i did an event together last mm. christmas where we, we you spoke about ghosts um when you're investigating something like ghosts if you're a paranormal investigator then you're looking for scientific evidence okay if you're a folklorist you couldn't care less if there was scientific evidence that's not what it's about it's about stories it's about how ideas change and and move around and things like that I think there's a lot of crossover between science and areas of folklore. Okay, there's, I, I spoke to uh, a very well-respected um, practitioner of traditional witchcraft in Cornwall, for example, and she said in, in an interview with me, there's a lot of crossover between witchcraft and magic and quantum theory, for example. They're both dealing with that kind of strange level of strangeness. Now, Professor Cox... If you ask him about anything to do with the paranormal or anything para-science, uh, we'll give a one-word answer, essentially. Yeah? yeah. No. Uh-huh. Or it... nobbers, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very that's, keen that's, on that's, that. That's another one. But does that mean I'm wrong? Or does that mean that... Uh, Brian's wrong and I can mark one up for folklore. Well the good thing is neither of you are right which means that's already a good journey towards scientific thought because that's the thing isn't it? It's about finding the least wrong answer. I think it's, I mean what to me is the most interesting thing is the stories it's not with science I think we could say it is important that it is the least wrong version of events. If you are dealing with, you know, whether it's dealing with trying to, you know, cure illness or go into space or terraform Mars, then there is a level of understanding that needs to be testable and provable 
and needs to have the lowest amount of risk and all of those things. But I think the story side of it, I mean, there's a bit, there's a, there's a line in um, Alan Moore's uh, From Hell uh, where he, I, I'll misquote it now, where he says, you know, the one place that the gods are indubitably true is in the minds of men in all of their horror, glory and grotesquerie. And I think that to me is the interesting part of it. The interesting thing is not whether ghosts exist. Uh, I don't, I mean, the idea of, it's interesting that the witchcraft and quantum mechanics thing is because David Bedeal, who I spoke to for the book, and David wrote a play called God's Dice, which is about the fact that when he first read about quantum mechanics, he wondered if it was ultimately a faith position, that it's the testable hypothesis there seemed to become problematic in a cloud of probability. And I think the more he's looked into it, the more he's realised that it is not the same as a religious faith position. That there are certain, you know, you can look at a certain number of equations, a certain set of equations, a certain set of probabilities, a certain bit of work where there is within that a broad testable idea. Uh, and um, so I think, I'm not sure whether witchcraft and quantum mechanics is, I don't think it is exploring the same area to me, but it depends, of course, on what you mean by witchcraft. Because there might be certain kind of spells, there might be certain kind of ideas. I think the danger with quantum mechanics, it's almost like a lot of scientific ideas, like the size of the universe and quantum behaviour, is actually we shouldn't worry about it for the way that we live our lives or the way that we judge our lives. Uh, so you'll get someone like Deepak Chopra, who creates this real mashup of you know, quantum healing, which is, I think, utter rubbish. Because what he will do is he will, when he writes his books, he will write it as this is science and this is what's going on with quantum behaviour. But if a scientist interviews him, he says, oh, I'm only talking about it metaphorically. But he doesn't talk about it metaphorically. Now, of course, there's another, when we mention metaphor, we could also say that many of the ways that we try and describe the universe are ultimately using metaphors. That actually, as human beings, we almost have no way of really talking hard and fast about reality we are always making hopefully better and better metaphors for our experience so i think there is there is a crossover and i think one of the things that we do need to look at and it's very important is the story side of all these things is very important it's like when sometimes people talk about the fact they'll say you know if, if someone says something that they don't agree with or, or about you know or some some pain they're experiencing or whatever oh it's all in the mind it's all in the mind and of course that's the important thing it is all in the mind and so the ghosts in all their grotesquerie and glory are real in the mind. The desire to test that physically seems to me to never have really given us anything of any interest. In fact, if anything, it's been a distraction from the really interesting thing of why Hayley Stevens, who I interviewed in the book, who when she was young, she believed in, in ghosts. She lived in a house where there'd been a grumpy old lady who hated children. So when stuff happened, the whole family would go, oh, my God, it's the grumpy old lady. Right. And she loved Most Haunted, Britain's Most Haunted or whatever it's called. And then she saw the episode where Derek Acora, the psychic medium, was found out to perhaps not have the same magical powers that he promised. He was, you know, he was duped and revealed. And so her first reaction to that was not, I don't believe in this anymore. She was going, I must find better psychic mediums. And I must, you know. And so she went off and investigated um, ghosts and hauntings. And then she slowly stopped believing in ghosts as... A, a manifestation that, that, that is testable and real. And she realised that, you know, ghosts were 
So many of our memories, so many of our hopes, so many of our fears, all of these things as real things. Um, And then she also became an expert in plumbing and chimneys because she found out that a lot of hauntings are various different forms of plumbing issues. And also, for instance, if you're in a house where you're sitting in a room and suddenly one door opens and the other slams shut, very often that can be down to a chimney flue and just a fluctuation in air. So she found lots of ways which, in, in one way removed ghosts but never removed her fascination in why we believe in ghosts and I think that kind of sense of also all in the mind is something that sometimes in a materialistic way we don't deal enough with our imagination um so there's a a story I tell in the book of I talked to a friend of mine Karen Rodham about pain she's an expert in pain and and we talked about the fact that one of the important things if someone says they're in pain is the first thing you have to accept is They are in pain. It doesn't matter what actually is going on in terms of physically testable, you know, if you look at their body and you say, but there's nothing wrong with your leg. It doesn't matter. You are still in in the same, like, like with phantom limbs as well. We might perhaps draw on that as well. You know, you can have a pain in a limb which no longer exists. You know, I mean, it's a fascinating thing, you know. Nelson, because he believed in ghosts, really did believe he had a phantom limb. He believed his arm had become a ghost. Also, by the way, I can say that my favourite theory about the Loch Ness Monster that I've read in the last year is that the Loch Ness Monster is the ghost of a dinosaur. I I love love that that. theory. It's one of my favourite theories, right? Um, But I then was reading this article about... uh, This was in The Lancet from a few years ago. And this is about the problem of pain and the reality of pain and the reality of the creations of our mind. A construction worker came into hospital and he had had an accident where he had ended up with a nail, a very big nail that had gone right through his work boot, right through his foot. He was in agony and he was screaming and screaming and screaming and he was having the highest doses of morphine they could give him because he was in such agony. And finally, as he was writhing around, they managed to get an X-ray done. And the x-ray revealed that the nail had merely gone through a gap between his toes. It hadn't pierced his foot at all. But his belief that it had pierced his foot was enough to put him in agony. So I think, you know, that, and I, 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 in some ways I wish I'd dealt with, I think the next book I do, which is going to be about our kind of perceptions of reality, I'd like to deal with those kind of ideas more. Because that is where the, I think, you know, Brian is, is hilarious to deal with if you get on anything beyond an atomic level. You know, during Brexit, going, but why have people chosen to do this? Why have they not seen the evidence? And I try and explain the way that human minds work. And he is just that kind of, oh, it gets so messy when it gets to molecules, doesn't it? And beyond, you know, and that is, and, and I think, you know, we are, and I think there's more and more people who have realised. I mean, in teaching, it's one of the agonies that many teachers have of going, we have no time to tell the story stories that will attach themselves to the children we just have to keep getting them memorizing these equations and and i know that that there's a lot of it's one of the reasons i dedicate the book to teachers and librarians because they are two groups of people who battle so much against the people in westminster who come up with these utterly dull and trite curriculums which uh, are not built to enthuse people which are not you know obviously a government especially a government like this has no interest in having a group of people who are critical thinkers or are passionate about the universe so you have the power of storytelling there as a way of of disseminating information and and educating and yes you're right that there are these constraints on doing that so where are we doing science well 
I think we're getting better. I mean, I really think the, there's so many... In fact, Stuart Clark, that's another book I'd have brought up. Stuart Clark's uh, book about the universe, which is... Uh, he's an astronomer... And he's written, and there's another one as well. Oh, sorry, I'll, show you, I'll take you around the bookshop and I'll give you, you know, I'll tell you which ones you need to buy as well because there's so much here. But I think we've reached a good or a better period of time where scientists are allowed to be excited and allowed to tell the, tell the stories and are allowed to show that the universe, from our perspective, is so absurd. Not from the universe's perspective. The universe is doing what universes do, following the laws of physics. But the laws of physics for human beings seem so counterinstinctual and so strange and peculiar that that has helped to re-enchant the universe around us. And I think, you know, biology is in such an interesting place because, you know, biologists like to mock physicists by saying, ha-ha, physicists, you don't have a final theory. We do, you know, with natural selection. But, of course, at the same time as having a final theory... The biology is also murkier and murkier. You know, it, it, with that final theory, trying to understand living things has has is, it, and it's, that's why it's so fascinating. It's, it's a bit like with neuroscience. You know, neuroscience ideas of free will, ideas of you know nature versus nurture, and all of that. It turns out the more we know, the murkier it gets. That's part, I think, of one of the things that we need to get out there more and more. I mean, to me, one of the biggest problems is not the scientists out there who want to express these ideas it's the lack of platforms for scientists why don't we see more scientists on question time why do we have so few scientists in the house of commons why do we see science sometimes put in a little specialist box in the newspapers but we don't see it weaved through so many other places we have a real battle to show that science is not a specialist subject it is everywhere. And I, I mean, I, for A-level, I did Renaissance history, English literature and politics, right? There was no science in any of that. There, was no, sci- there should be science in politics. Renaissance history is rich with this fantastic mix of kind of alchemy and the birth of a more complex scientific idea. But I was taught nothing about that. And English literature, you know, I read Middlemarch. Middlemarch, George Eliot, was influenced by Charles Darwin. And some of the characters within that novel are, you know, are, are Darwinian characters. But that was never there. So, so I think we've got, we've got a real battle to... Uh, the battle continues. The, the, I mean, the, the, the problems are, I think, still the perception of scientists. I think it is still, though it's getting better and better, I still think the public perception of a scientist is of a man. And it's a man in a white coat. And I, uh, I was up in Settle doing a bookshop there. And I was chatting to a 17-year-old there. And she was, in, she was in these fantastic dungarees where she'd managed to weave in different kind of constellations on the front and subatomic bits on the back. And she was telling me that she is the only girl to do A-level physics in her school for five years, right? So that's one thing. That, that, that's part of, and that work still needs to be done. And there are still problems within the... So, uh, sorry, you said about the positive things, right? Uh, did you want negative things? <laughs> no, no, it was a long, no, long time ago, wasn't it? Um, but, but, but I do think that, you know, Lucy Green, who's a friend of mine who's a solar scientist, when she started as a solar scientist, uh, she was so excited. And when she would see an image of the sun, you know those, those images where you actually see the activity of the sun, which are so beautiful, she would get excited to see that and she would be told off. People would say she would get called, and I think there's misogyny in this as well, she would get called ditzy. And it's like, well, actually, she says now, there's a lot of those scientists who are off the scene. 
And there are more scientists say, do you know what? It's right for us to jump up and down when we first see these things and say, my God, that is beautiful and that is wonderful. And then you have to stop jumping up and down so much when you're actually getting to the, you know, the really hard bits of the research. But it, I mean, that, that bit which we need to get more and more is the realisation that the imaginative mind of the scientist is not as different to the imaginative mind of the artist. And in fact, what draws both those groups in at the first, in the very initial point, the first point, they might go off in different directions, but the first thing is beauty, fascination, imagination. It's like Joan Feynman, who spent most of her life studying the uh, Aurora Borealis. You know, the starting point for her, it was her and her brother Richard lying on the grass of a golf course late at night, and they were watching the Aurora Borealis, and her starting point was what a beautiful thing and her and Richard were both there going this is just so beautiful her starting point wasn't oh, how does that work her starting point was it's beautiful and then she spent her life amongst other things studying the aurora borealis doing an incredibly important work in understanding that beauty and that light show and if you watch her when she's interviewed when she's 89 years old she is as delighted by the aurora borealis as she was when she was 25 years old so I think those kind of, you know, that's one of the things that we need to push more and more. And that's what the curriculum is failing to do. The curriculum is still, and it's something I spoke to teachers about, it is still doing this thing, which is basically working out who in the class is going to be a scientist. So it weeds out people who might have an interest in science. Uh, they, they disappear. They go on the sidelines. And I think what we need in the curriculum is we need more... It won't happen, not with this government. And, and I think, in fact, a lot of... We just don't have enough people who are really pushing for what education should be, which is to create, you know, groups of people who are fascinated and intrigued and want to investigate things more. Um, but, yeah, I think that's what we need to have, a whole area of science, which is for the people who are never going to grow up to be scientists. I think I'd argue as well that perhaps, perhaps we would um, have a, a better respect for science and for scientists if when they gave us good advice about something we didn't turn around and ignore it yeah well this is interesting with the covid situation i think in march the beginning of march last year some scientists were like the one good thing they were seeing was at last after all of this you know oh everyone's bored of experts people will realize that experts can be quite useful in a pandemic and then a couple of weeks later, they started seeing this government using the phrase the science and they went, oh, we're going to be the people who are the fall guys in this situation because they're setting this up to make us the people who are going to be blamed. And also we have far too many people in the public sphere who, you know, write about science and are on the Jeremy Vine show or whatever. All these people <coughs> given platforms who don't understand what they're talking about, but are always 100 percent right. There are a number of those, I think. One of the other areas that perhaps science has a difficult crossover with, which you address in the in the book in various places, is and you've you've spoken about this already slightly, is science and religion, mm. science and faith-based religions. Are they disparate? Is there a more comfortable crossover than some people might expect? I, I, I think there can be a really comfortable crossover. I mean, what it's the, it's the thing that I, I, I talked to Richard Dawkins about many years ago, and I said, I think the atheist movement needs to move now into, rather than being atheist, say there is a movement against dogma. 
because I think that's the real enemy for all of us, which is, you know, when you get people who are utterly dogmatic. And of course, that can be within fundamentalist religion and other forms of religion as well. It can be in political systems. I think once we start tackling, I mean, the, the religious people that I speak to in the book and people who are my friends who are religious and some of them quite high up in the church, they all approach their faith with an enormous amount of doubt as well. They're always battling with it. So they're not, you know, sometimes someone like Ricky Gervais or whatever will talk about the fact that, you know, oh, they just believe in this thing so they can go to heaven and blah, blah, blah. And it's not. Most religious people, and I know it's going to be a self-selecting group because they're religious people who don't mind hanging around with me. But, you know, some of them are quite old and some of them have been in the church a long time and, the, and they think doubt is very, very important. And I think, I think we've got a problem with the image of God as well. Sometimes when you read some of those kind of, uh, you know, as, as they were called, the new atheists, not by themselves, by, by you know, people who are criticising them, really is that they imagine that God exists in the same part of the brain where our scientific thinking exists. And I don't think it does for a lot of people. I think what God can be is when you or I have a transcendent moment. Say we go up to you know one of the beautiful tours that's not far from here and you stand on top of it and it's an utterly beautiful day and you have that transcendent experience. Now, some people in that transcendent experience, somewhere in that translation of that experience, is God. And for me, there isn't God. But it, it's a very similar experience. Why one group have that and one group, I don't know. There's, but I think God is, is a much more, I mean, as I mentioned in the book, Carlos Frank, who is a, is a man far wiser than I could ever be, whose, whose predominant concern at the moment is, is understanding ideas of the possibility of cold, dark matter. And who also very beautifully, whenever... He, he sometimes does lectures where he shows Magritte paintings and then he shows the image of the cosmic microwave background radiation. And when he shows that image, which is an image that I still find hard to believe exists, this idea there is an image of the universe when it was a baby, you know, when it was 380,000 years old, is so remarkable to me. And when he shows that image, he, he tries to hide it from the audience, but a tear will appear. Because he cannot believe that possibility. But I heard Carlos talking one day on a radio show and he said he started talking about God. And I was like, hang on a minute, Carlos, is, he's a cosmologist and I know his scientific beliefs. He can't believe in God, surely. And I rang him up and I said, Carlos, when you say God, do you mean that kind of mind of God that Stephen Hawking talks about? Or do you kind of mean, you know, Einstein's view of God? He said, no, I believe in God. I was brought up half Jewish and half Catholic. I've chosen the Jewish God. And because if you've got a choice, you know, it's nice, extra little thing you have. And um, and he said, yeah, I believe in God. And then he said, but I don't allow him into the laboratory, which I love, which for, for you know, any deity that likes to imagine it's omnipresent to be told to wait outside must be infuriating. But I'm everywhere. No, stay there. You get in the way of the science. And, and so I love the way. And, and he actually said to me, we, we've had we, during lockdown, we used to talk to each other every Wednesday. We'd have this lovely like kind of you know, chat for a couple of hours. And he would always give me great advice about lots of art things as well. And, and he said, I cannot believe the universe exists without God. But God has very little to do in his universe, except he does have a big thing to do, which is set up the universe. But then, according to Carlos, he goes on holiday. So 13.8 billion years, he's not been around. I think there'll be some denominations around there which won't be keen on that view. But, but you know, Carlos has found a way where he, he, God exists for him, but God is a non-interventionist God, and, uh, and God is needed for his philosophical beliefs, but God is not here now. 
But of course, you can work with material and, and be hugely expert with that material and, and not necessarily relate to it on that belief level, can you? Mm. I'm thinking of um, Francesca Stavrakopoulou um, at the University of Exeter, who's been a guest a couple of times yeah. on the Infinite Monkey Cage. He's a fantastic biblical scholar, one of the best biblical scholars, uh, yet is an atheist. I think that's why she's such a great scholar on that, though. Exactly what we were saying before. She can see the stories. She can really see the stories without worrying that if the story changes, will her belief fall apart? Mm. And that's she's just written a book. Have you got God and Anatomy? Mm. Oh, it's such a good book. Have you read any of it yet? Only, only the feet. Oh, the feet are... What a great place to start, though. Because you do get that image of kind of the python foot as well. It's such a beautiful... And she, she's written this book, which is about um, the physical world of God in the Bible, which is very often, you know, you don't even realise is there. It's not in the Hamlin colour children's Bible or anything like that, but it's really in the Bible. And they are incredible, some of the things. And it's... Uh, um, but, yeah, I think that's why she's such a great biblical scholar, is mm. because she's dealing with stories and she's believing... She, she, she's looking at why does this exist why have the minds of human beings created this and i think a lot of what you know sometimes in that world one of the sadnesses we're always it's, it's like with some of the pseudoscience stuff i think it's always underestimating the brilliance of human imagination you know, the, the, you know, the, it's like now we have some really fascinating investigations into what dreams, the importance of dreams, mm. in a way that before would have been purely mythic, and now actually they're pragmatic use. Yeah. One of my best questions I've ever been asked was by a ten-year-old girl at Hay, who came up. Well, her mother came up to him and went, "My daughter's really worried, and she's got a question. Can she ask it to you?" I went, "Of course." And this ten-year-old came up to him and went, "I just need to know how can I work out for sure that I'm not merely a character in someone else's dream?" And then. <laughs> And then we sat together and we talked. And I thought, I'll get this done in two minutes. And 30 minutes later, we're going, oh, no, hang on. You could still be a character in a dream, couldn't you? And then at the end of the 30 minutes, I think I'd kind of persuaded her that she wasn't a character in someone else's dream. But I think I'd begun to persuade myself that I was. So I was like, kind of, what an annoying child. More anxiety. But the best questions come from children but, because they have that way of thinking that, that gets worked out of us when we become adults. Well, that's what we need to yeah. also work against. When you say what we need from science, is do not be scared about the questions you want to ask because it's what I, I have definitely learned in particular in the last 10 years is not to so often you think oh my god that must seem like the most easy question in the world and that must seem like such a stupid thing that I don't know this and of course if but if it's a genuine place of curiosity and I, and I think yeah that's another problem I, I think that cocksure nature that we see across our media is allowable and possible precisely because those people have done so little reading, have so little imagination and so little curiosity, so they only need to find out a tiny little thing and then they can believe that they know everything about it. And I don't just mean Peter Hitchens. No, no, no. there are other people you could mean as well. Yeah, Carol Malone would be another one. Alison Pearson, who wrote an article about how um, the BBC hated Britain and was the most anti-British thing. And I investigated that by buying a copy of the Radio Times. And I looked at the days, the day she wrote that column, all that was on was people going to antique shops in Britain, moving to the countryside in Britain. And then the pinnacle of it was at nine o'clock, there was a show which was about a Cornish vicar racing his ducks. And I thought for an anti-British organisation, they have failed dismally there. <laughs> that, that is pretty British, let's be honest. Um, 
I'm aware you have 17 gigs this week, mm. uh, uh, but Dee hasn't thrown anything at me yet, so so we're good. Um, are you happy for me to throw it to the floor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask anything. There's, anybody, so, uh, there's so much I haven't talked about. Got a burning like, question that they want to. And there are no stupid questions. Right. Genuinely, like like kind of. The, I'll tell you what. Right here, I'll give you an example of another question I got. This is my favourite question I've ever had. In uh, I think I might have mentioned it on book uh, on Monkey Cage because it was just. Uh, I, uh, we did a monkey case the day after. I was doing a gig in Keswick, and I hope some of you have been to Keswick. There's many reasons oh, to go to Keswick. Beautiful, Ooh. and a pencil museum. I've not and been to pencil museum. What do you mean you've not been to the pencil well, museum? They used to have star, uh, Cars of the Stars. It oh, used to be a museum in Keswick, which nah. I did go to. Cars, who cares about cars when you've got pencils, right? <laughs> and, and the pencil museum, right, is a re- I loved it. It's a proper, like, oh, this is the history of pencil. That's the kind of person I am. And then just when you go, I think I've had enough with the pencils, you find out there's a separate section, which is the history of erasing as well so it's got everything going on there um, but when I was doing that gig uh, that was when I did my previous show uh, I'm a joke and so are you which kind of dealt with was some stuff about why we become who we become and how we deal with it and there were ideas of kind of neurodivergence there and, and also a lot of stuff about Laurel and Hardy so normally I'd either get questions about kind of comedy or questions about kind of depression or melancholy or something like that but in this one in this like 400 seater this woman quite near the front put her hand up and went I've got a question and her daughter was there and went don't ask it, Mum. I went, it's fine. What do you want? She went, oh, God, my mum's got this stupid question, right? I said, what's your question? And she went, I just wondered. When I was in the queue, behind me, there was someone talking about the thinking man's crumpet. And I can't remember her name. Can you? I said, yeah, it's Joan Bakewell. She said, thank you very much. I told you he'd know. And... Uh, <laughs> And her daughters came to the gig I did in Carlisle two weeks ago and they got their books. They do this every time they buy a book off me. They're always signed to Joan Bakewell, question mark. <laughs> but yeah, so ask anything you want. You are, of course, preaching to the converted with the Pencil Museum because we do have Barometer World not very oh, far Oh, yeah, I, I used to talk about yeah. Barometer World a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so we're, we're good on museums too. Has anybody got anything they do want to ask before I ask my final question that I'm going to throw in? Yeah. yeah, I was wondering, you said that you got um, turned off science when you were 13 and then got the bug when you were 23. Did you get stuck into a degree or how much sort of formal studying did you do at that point when you got back into it? No formal studying. I don't have the focus on it for, for that kind of thing. I'm a very scatty thinker. So um, I sometimes people say, what kind of science would you actually study? If you had? And I think I am somebody who just goes, oh, oh. Oh, and that's what I like doing is I like pouring just things into my head and then shaking them up. So, I mean, I would love to, you know, there's there's certain areas of of kind of genetics that I find utterly fascinating. There's, you know, some of the ideas um, in in, in theoretical physics, which I think are way beyond me, which I'd really at least like to get to that point of. um, But I know that that's not the way my mind works. And I think, you know, finding out, you know, sometimes there are. But I I would, but basically what I did was I would then just, I just kept going and buying new books and then thinking I need a telescope. And uh, and so I would I was, when I say self-taught, not very deeply, you know, it's not like there is a degree in me or anything like that, but I just, so I, w- I would get fascinated in a topic and I would just read it and read it and scribble in the book and all that kind of stuff and just try and build it up myself. And that, and that was the way. And that's why I think also I, I, you know, very much tell people, like I said before, don't get worried about not understanding everything. Just enjoy the fact, you know, there is that that horrific thing initially, but then it becomes a fantastic thing of knowing that if you're learning properly, you never reduce the amount that you don't know. 
because every time that you learn something new, you go, and while I learned that, I found out how much I didn't know I didn't know. So every week, the amount you don't know is bigger than it was the week before, even though you got and and that and, and that's what I kind of so so that's how I try and work as I try and speak to as many interesting people as possible. I'm, I'm not that shy in terms of just going up to people and saying, oh, "I love your work. Can you tell me a little bit about this?" So yeah, it's it's all kind of self-taught. Books are the key, you see. If we're in the right setting. But they are. I mean, this is such a beautiful thing. You know, I, I talked about it in one of my shows. I don't know if it was one of the ones you came to, but this idea that they are fossils of the mind, that in every single one of these books, we are the only animal that we know of so far that can leave behind some of the activity of its brain. And and I find it, you know, and there are, just down in that front, I mean, the number of books that I picked up, they're like, that's brilliant, and that's beautiful, and that will change the way the, I mean, that's the thing, is is I go back again to that point, which is holding on to your beliefs with as loose a hand as possible, because you should be changing the way the sky looks for you, and you should be changing the way that you understand love and history, and the way, and, and human potential, and the potential of the unit, all of those things should be changing all the time. And it makes for, you know, and I think you know, that's one of the reasons to battle dogma. One of the reasons to battle dogma is it's actually a battle against boredom as well, I think. You have to bear in mind, of course, as well, for those, for those that don't follow um, Robin online, this is somebody who, who recently cleared 2,000 books out of his house and didn't notice the difference. Yeah, it made no difference. So it's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. And that's, that, that was one of the things that was nice, actually, about... Um, you know, again, I say I haven't actually been diagnosed, but when someone, and I don't know, this might be true of other people here, when I had a long chat with this guy, Jamie and Lyon, who does this fantastic series on a BBC podcast called um, uh, 1600 Seconds of Autism, um, when he went through all these different things about ADHD, at 52 years of age, things suddenly made sense about the way that my, all the things that I was really furious with myself for not being able to do, and what I'm, you know, that that bit of the narrative arc thing, and so many other things as well, and on other sides of it, kind of, you know, depressive thoughts and stuff like that. To suddenly get that framing of it's okay just to keep pouring stuff in your head, and you might not be able to get to that point of, you know, some of the logical conclusions that that certain kinds of thinkers can, but that's okay. And and that I I, I found. Just in, it was inc- it was like just it's and I'm sure some other people have had in different kind of maybe senses of neurodivergence where but you might have had a moment of, of realization or a moment where and you've gone oh that's I mean that's what I, I love writing about neuroscience and psychology because I think you know one of the things that I loved about writing the previous book was I would sometimes stand on stage and talk about an idea that I didn't know how weird it was or not because I'd never said it out loud before and when someone else comes up to you and says oh my God, I've kept that inside my head for 40 years. I really thought that I was just a freak and a weirdo and whatever. And now I realise that, well, at the very least, there's two of us who are freaks and weirdos, but possibly even more than that. And I think that's... I go back to... uh, Sometimes I can't remember if I've mentioned this already today or whether it was yesterday when I was in Norwich. But it was uh, that bit of just allowing ourselves to not feel as much shame about so many different to 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 have one of the things that helen sharman learned from and i love that the english astronauts uh, are such an interesting breed i know there's only only two so far but they're so different the american astronauts when you interview a lot of american astronauts you say why do you become an astronaut they will give you a fantastic epic backstory about something they saw on television maybe it was you know apollo 14 i saw apollo 14 and suddenly i realized that was what i had to do i had to reach out 
towards the stars. I had to, this was my destiny. And they'll give you this huge story. And then you ask Tim or Helen, why did you become an astronaut? And they say, saw an advert. And it's fantastic, right? It's the difference of that. And, uh, but one of the beautiful things that Helen will talk about is that, of course, going into space was enormous in terms of philosophically and psychologically and just for her personal experience. But the, the greatest lesson that she learnt from doing that mission was going to Russia. She was, there was the early 90s and she had very much fallen for the capitalist dream. She was like, wanted to race fast cars, get motorbikes, make a lot of money. And then she went to a country where there was not a lot of money and a lot of people didn't even have a car. And she would chat to these astronauts and she said suddenly there was this incredible connection. And she said, you know, when, when, when one of the Russians would say, how are you? They meant, how are you? How, tell me, don't just say, I'm all right at the moment. Actually, oh, not so good. They want to know how you are. They want to know how your day is going, how your world is. And, and I think, you know, and I think it's, it is somewhere in the book, actually, I think in some of the chapters is that it's, it's something that, sorry if this sounds trite or whatever, but there was a certain point in, in the years that I've done various different things. And I think a lot of it was in writing the last book as well, but maybe in, in another show that I did, where suddenly finding out that people, if you stand on a stage and you're the freak and the weirdo that you really are, and people go, oh my God, this is great. I'm, I'm a freak and a weirdo. And that moment of realising that, you know, there's that line in Rock and Roll Suicide, David Bowie, you know, where he suddenly says, oh, no, love, you're not alone. And the important and I think there's so many different sides of our scientific understanding that creates so many connections, which are not merely the connections of, of scientific theory. They are real human connections. And that you really, you know, it's like when you look at things, obviously Adam Rutherford wrote that book about, you know, how to argue with a racist. And the fact that all of those different kind of ideas of so many different ways in which, and I write about that, Aoife McLysat, when I talk to her about the differences, genetic differences between us, that actually there is as much genetic difference between you and you as there is between you and someone who was born and brought up in Kenya and someone who was born and brought up in New Zealand, someone who was born and brought up in Chile and all of those things those realization and that becomes then a very real attack another attack on the different kind of dogma and culture wars and all of those things so there is a real pragmatic thing there but there is also a thing i think that is filled with so many you know possibilities of love and hope I mean, one of one of the, the joys of, of having this interest in in everything you know in science in the world around us, everything else is that you have this wonderful ability to be able to just move from subject to subject so seamlessly as well. I mean, you were talking about your um, uh, I'm a Joke show in, in Exeter, which I remember distinctly the fact that, because we, we had a coffee, if I remember rightly, before the show, and I remember you saying, I've just finished my PowerPoint, it's got 240 slides, uh, and I think you showed six. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I got through that many, actually. It's very think, rare, very rare. I think you gave yourself a kicking in the interval. But, but I always but... imagine, every time... I did a show about reality the other day, which was 55 minutes long, and I really thought I'd get through 170 slides. The first one was a picture of Alice Cooper. And it turns out Alice Cooper is connected to so many different ideas in the show, um, including the fact, you know, I, I could get to Alice Cooper, from Alice Cooper to Black Holes, because Salvador Dali, one of the things that Salvador Dali tried to do was he wanted to turn Alice Cooper into a hologram. So that allowed me to talk about the holographic principle and also then to talk about the idea of black holes and how that influenced the holographic principle. But also Alice Cooper was in Prince of Darkness and Prince of Darkness, the John Carpenter movie, is a little bit about how quantum theory might affect ultimately the idea of Satan. Right. So 
it turned out that I had 160 slides and only needed Alice Cooper. Cooper. Yeah, so that is... Uh... These are the reasons why it is important to be interested in everything. Does anybody else want to ask? There's a question yeah. there, yeah. Yeah, um, so um, I, I'm a scientist by trade, but also the, the local trainee vicars here. And, and so like, and there's great, and there's great in science and in, and in Christianity, there's a thing about we're able to say, I don't know. Mm. And so what is it you think is the reason why in society today there's a general perception in which we cannot say, I don't know? It's a really weird thing when you say it because uh, the, there's about three events I've done recently where I've been asked questions where I've said, I'm not the person to answer that, I don't really know about that, but I can tell you where you can find out about wormholes or whatever. And I have people come up to us and go, thank you so much for saying I don't know. And what an odd thing. What an odd thing that people should find that an unusual... But you're right, I don't think it's just now... I think the unfortunate thing is, and I probably can't go any much further back in terms of my understanding from the kind of Western colonial society. So I won't go back into other cultures. I mean, it's interesting. I have a Jewish friend who says uh, one of the things that pleases him so much about being brought up Jewish is you're allowed to answer a question with a question, which I think is, again, part... In some ways, I think that says a lot about why we have so many great minds who came up through the Jewish culture in terms of understanding 20th century physics, because that is to have that uh, in there. So I think it is that people want definites. And the odd thing is, though, it doesn't seem to make them happy, because you sometimes imagine that a fundamentalist must be happy because they've got a certain world, and yet they're always furious because (laughs) people, the cognitive dissonance required, and the fact that if anyone questions them, they only have one reality. This is the sort of... How dare you? So... But I, I, and I think that I think some of it's tribalism. I think to belong to the same certain gang. I mean, I think I do belong to a gang, but they're a gang of people who are disparate and all filled with different doubts. So I'm very lucky to have formed this kind of, you know, gang of people who can often be in a kind of superposition of thought. So I think it is. It's it's about so much of it is about fear. So and, and I can see why people are scared at the moment. People are without even dealing with the politics. There's never been such easy access to so much information. And when you are bombarded with information, you don't... First of all, we should sometimes just go, let's just leave that bit. Do I need to know this? No, I don't. Let's just put that aside. I mean, someone the other day was arguing for me because of some argument with this bloke who'd, who'd attacked something I'd said. And I said, this bloke has two initials and seven numbers after their name. They're not even real. You're arguing with a bot here. So just don't, please don't waste your time because you can enjoy your life so much more. I think there's also, there's a quote that I often use from James Baldwin, who is one of my favourite human beings. I think, uh, sure, you've got what James, but you've got some James Baldwin, I, I would imagine, haven't you? Yeah, because he's just, he was a brilliant thinker and a brilliant activist and a beautiful writer. And, uh, and he talked about the fact, he said, he said, I think the reason people hate so much is because if they stopped hating they would have to deal with their pain. And I think hate can very often come from certainty as well. So if you have a very certain belief, you can really hate those people who do not have that belief. And I, th- I was thinking about this today, actually. I'm, writing, I'm, I'm doing the Linda Smith lecture this year in, in, in memory of the great comic Linda, and, and I, was, I wanted to talk about these edgy comics that you know, are supposedly, ah, oh, they're really brilliant, they're so edgy. And what, more often than not, they're just people who've turned bigotry. There's a friend of mine, no longer with us, sadly, Barry Crimmins, who said, ah, oh, when people say I'm not politically correct, well done for somehow finding a way of creating a hero position for bolstering the oppressive status quo. 
And there's a lot of people doing that. I think Dave Chappelle's latest special about kind of trans people is particularly insidious and, and vile and really should not come from a comedian as great as him. But I think, you know, that, that is one of the reasons, that certainty of at least I know who I'm meant to hate. That, I think, is, is when you are lost. But I think, yeah, that, that, that bit of dealing with our own pain. And when you start dealing with your own pain, it's, it, the, the relief to start dealing with that and when you start dealing with that you also start other people come out and say I've had that pain as well and I'm sorry it's a very long way round but I think all of these things are connected the, con- the, the, the need for certainty you know I, I think you don't make when you, when you try you know when you start a relationship with someone you never make a compilation tape do you or whatever you want to say a playlist of these are the bands I hate <laughs> oh brilliant I hate them too <laughs> You know, so I, and, and that's part of the job that I think you know we all have now as well is when there is such negativity and there is such certainty is to try every single day of whatever platform you have, whatever social media. Here's something I love today. Here's someone saying something brilliant and beautiful. Don't share that column which is monetized by the fact that you have shared it. You know, don't share those things. I think. So there's a question over there as well. Yeah, it's actually about the process of writing a book. So as a person with busy mind and it would seem to me that you might get distracted quite easily how do you actually focus for a period of time to actually write it well one of the things was the book was a hundred thousand words longer than the one you're going to see now which exists (laughs) so what happens is i go and i just i get and and then what the first draft is always really chaotic and then i just and i hate editing as you can imagine like some writers love editing I hate it because I love I would love to be able to take people in the way that my mind works but I realise actually you would have to you know my, my mate Trent who I do a lot of work with he always says my favourite version of your book always the first draft because I've known you though for 15 years that's why anyone buying a book in a shop if they just opened it they'd go this makes Finnegan's Wake look like it's a linear narrative you know it would be, it would be chaos um, so it's really hard I find it very very hard and what normally happens is I will suddenly have a moment where on some days 5,000 words will come out and it's almost like watching Jack Nicholson in The Shining it's just you know time, and, and then some days I start and then I start again 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 but more often than not what I find is that I've gone on all these tangents and I, most of, of my writing the ultimate thing that comes out from it is is through the editing of it is through smashing away all of all of that stuff but I would love to do you know if I could do one day I'll write a book like a choose your own adventure book where each tangent leads to a different tangent Funny, I was, I was just going to suggest that actually Jackson and Livingston might might be the route that you should take I would love to do one. something like that but yeah I find it really really difficult to write well no I don't I find it lovely I find it brilliant to write I find it much harder to be comprehensible <laughs> I think that's probably the truth of it I suspect we've probably overrun sufficiently by now. No! I'm not wearing, I'm not wearing. I need more questions, and I need them now. In that case, I will give you another one to close off, all right? With, with reference, Robin, only to your own book, yep. what is the importance of being interested? Do you know what? I think it is just uh, the fact that the most important one is it just makes the journey much more exciting. It really, every time that it changes something, I mean, I I talk in the book about, um, you know, Chris Jackson, who's a geologist, and and he's great. Chris is so, Chris always has a pocket full of stones. 
And when Chris walks around, he'll pick up a stone and he'll look at it and he'll think, there's a story in this stone. I wonder what the story is. I mean, if you heard the episode of Infinite Monkey Cage, which we did with some geologists, when they talk about the fact that sometimes they chew on stones to find out what kind of stones they are. But it means that, look, his his big story was he used to go to the Peak District with his mum and dad and one day... Uh, he was looking at this particular outcrop, I think near Matlock Bath, and it was beautiful, and, it, and he became fascinated by it. And he thought, what is it doing? That, it just doesn't look in the right place. And then he finds out it was a coral reef. And he goes, what's a coral reef doing in Derbyshire? You know, the sea's over there, and it's over there, but it's not here. And that meant that what he saw was suddenly an even more exciting and beautiful picture. And when you look at the stars, and the more that you know about the stars the more beautiful and fascinating they are. And, and I think, so for me, amongst, apart from all of the other things, all of the other importance of trying to make sure that we have the best understanding of the world so that we make the best decisions possible, especially for the future generations, uh, to hell with all of those things, even though they're so important. The really big thing is it makes everywhere more fascinating and beautiful. And it is, you know, it goes back to Richard Feynman, you know, him looking at the flower. And it's like Oliver Sacks tells... I mean, Oliver Sacks was such a beautiful, beautiful writer. And he, in, in the last... I think it's the final collection that was released, Rivers of Consciousness, which is his book about uh, William James and Henry James and Freud and some of the essays that he wrote. And one of them is he talks about when he fell in love with flowers. He fell in love with flowers when he was going around the garden and he was looking at the magnolia plant. And there were all these little kind of bugs crawling over the magnolia plant. And he said to his mum, Why are the bugs crawling over the magnolia plant? And she said, because at the point in which the magnolia plant will have evolved, there weren't bees. So bees would not have been able to pollinate the magnolia plant. So the thing, the relationship it has is it has a relationship with these little beetles. And suddenly he realised that you could look at different plants and different flowers and see what pollinated them. And you could get a little bit of a picture of the tree of life. And so it makes things just so much more beautiful. I'll let you into a secret that um, Infinite Monkey Cage episode about geology and how that inspired me. I shortly after that was broadcast. I was asked to take part in a recorded, um, sponsored um, role-playing game session for, for a, a game which has just recently come out called Solemn Vale, which is a folk horror role-playing game set in the West Country in the 1970s. And, and I had to take part in this game called the Atlas Mines, where we got taken down this mine looking for evidence or something or other. Um, and the first thing that the guy running the game did was to describe the walls of the mine. And I was playing somebody with an interest in geology. And he said, what do you do? And I said, I lick the wall. <laughs> and it didn't go well. So you, can, you, can, you can feed that back the next time. You oh, that's great! If we're doing the but that, uh, that came from that episode. Well, that's what yeah. I mean. That's what we try and do with monkey cages. The idea is with luck. There's always three ideas in it which a general audience might never have heard before. But our main hope is not that we give people a, a little kind of here we go. Here's your module that we give them enough ideas. And this is what I hope to do with the book as well. That you decide. I want to find out more about that. I want to go on that adventure. Can I do a poem before we end? Of course. This is, uh, this is about some of the things that I've talked about tonight. And thank you very much for... I'm sorry that it's, it's always like... I, I know I talk a lot. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> You're fine, Ron. This is, uh, this is about some of those things anyway. Last night, a ghost collided with my head. It was the light from something dead. Once it breathed hydrogen into helium, created a beacon, projected its existence across the sky, and then some of that life hit me in the eye. 
and then expanded in my mind. In its size and in its power, it had been grander than I could ever be. But it never knew how grand it was. It never knew the awe inspired. Never experienced its existence. There was nothing it was like to be that star. Only something it was like to marvel at that star. Because stars cannot wonder about stars. And Jupiter too is without curiosity. See, I'm small and I'm fragile and I'm easily felled by meteorites or by microbes. But I'm also pugnacious and inquiring and tenacious and I can chew on the quandaries of the cosmos because I've got a skull full of questions and pictures and problems too. For instance, I don't like my anxiety. But then I realise that it might also be my fire because much that destroys me might also create me. There is something it is like to be me, and it's not always satisfactory. My atoms battle, my molecules revolt, but my potential exceeds a single chemical reaction or the one line of an equation. Confused, confusing, absurd, but flashes of inspiration, and out of my ashes may grow apples. Emergent complexity briefly defeats the void. There we are. It's really nice to hear what sounded like a giant urinating rock. Thanks very much for that. Thank you. No. 
So 